Chapter 9, Part 5 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Derek McLaughlin. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. Edited by Gerald Burney Smith. Chapter 9, Part 5 Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics. Christian Ethics. The Christian is a person who not only relates his life to the spiritual realities of his environment for the sake of his own inner satisfaction, but who also necessarily lives in the world and in society with certain standards of conduct. He believes that certain ways of behavior are imperative, and he seeks to order his own life and to organize society in such a way as to promote the kind of life in which he believes. Christian ethics undertakes to set forth the principles which the Christian believes ought to guide human conduct. Probably this ethical aspect of Christianity is most important in the eyes of most men. Theological opinions are very generally regarded as matter of personal opinion, but moral convictions are esteemed to be of primary importance, and an individual or a church is generally judged on the basis of ethics rather than on the basis of theological beliefs. A study of the ethical content of Christianity is thus imperative if one is to understand its real nature. The Historical Evolution of Christian Ethics Just as it has been common to think of Christian doctrine as a thing authoritatively fixed once for all, persisting unchanged through the ages, so it has been customary to speak of Christian ethics as a divinely authorized system of conduct. The first task of the student should be to realize the significance of historical development in the realm of Christian conduct. In a vague way, the fact of historical change is realized by everyone. Paul's precepts concerning the behavior of women in public places are generally recognized to have been the reflection of local and temporal exigencies. Protestants regard some Catholic practices, like fasting, obedience to the ecclesiastical authorities, etc., as unwarranted developments in Christian history. But there is not yet an adequate understanding of the fact that Christian morality has had a historical development. Until this is fully realized, Christians will be more eager to conserve the customs of the past than aggressively to attack the evils of the present and the future. The Ethical Ideal of the Primitive Christians The lofty ideals of the New Testament Christians will always stand as an inspiration to later ages. But it is important for the student to realize the historical limitations of those ideals, as well as to appreciate their moral grandeur. The early Christians were looking for a speedy ending of this present evil age by the miraculous establishment of the kingdom of God. Their affections were therefore set upon a future which was not to be brought about by their own moral efforts. To be a Christian meant to be personally devoted to Christ, so as to win his approval in the great day of judgment but it did not mean that Christians should undertake to transform the existing social order. This was expected to pass away in the great consummation. The New Testament thus lacks that interest in social evolution which is an essential of modern ethical thinking. This disregard for the present social order and the vivid expectation of the speedy coming of the heavenly kingdom meant that the standards of conduct must be found in that other world rather than in this. Consequently, men were concerned to ask what God requires of those who are to be citizens of the coming kingdom, rather than to ask what ought to be done to make this world a better place in which to live. 
It is true that the interpretation of the character of God given by Jesus, and set forth by his disciples, affirms that God is fundamentally concerned with humanitarian welfare. Thus, in actual content, the ethics of the New Testament demands the exercise of unselfish love toward one's fellow men. But these same fellow men are valued, not as citizens of this world, but as beings capable of entering into the future kingdom. Thus, the morality of the New Testament moves on a very simple plane of personal relationships and does not involve any serious entanglement with the social and industrial problems of existing civilization. This dominant position of the eschatological hope makes it impossible to transfer literally to our own age the precepts of the New Testament. To do so would mean to ignore the moral problems due to modern social and industrial conditions. It is of a special importance that the student should learn to read the moral ideals of the New Testament in the light of the historical situation in order to see the inadequacy of a conception of Christian ethics which would ascertain duty for today simply by asking what the New Testament teaches. The Subordination of Ethical to Religious Interests This attitude on the part of the early church meant that conduct must be judged in relation to religious interests. To be ready for the coming kingdom was more important than to attain any particular status in this world. The inevitable consequence of this point of view was to make ethics subordinate to theology. Indeed, it is only in modern times that Christian ethics as a separate realm of study has been differentiated from theology as a whole. The Development of the Catholic Conception of Christian Ethics The theological emphasis which placed the future world above the present, and which led men first to ask what was demanded in order to be eligible to the blessings of that future world, made inevitable the development of a system of authoritative control of human conduct. If ethics be defined as obedience to the will of God, the all-important question is to determine where that divine will is made known. So long as men disagree here, human error is vitiating conclusions. The possibility of mistake must be eliminated. Catholicism has undertaken to furnish an authoritative pronouncement of the divine will. The Church, as the divinely appointed agent of God, has the right to guide the inquiries of men and to decide what conclusions are in accord with God's revealed will. All merely natural reasoning must be subjected to the censorship of supernatural authority. All activities of men are to be controlled by the Church. The moral quality of an action is ultimately determined by its conformity or lack of conformity to the authority of the Church. Thus, Church-controlled education is morally superior to secular education because it inculcates a willingness to conform to authority. An unbaptized man is morally bad because he has not submitted himself to the Church. Freedom of research, freedom in politics, freedom of religious thinking— are all dangerous because these attitudes represent a fundamental failure to apply the standard of authority. Obviously such a conception of ethics makes difficult, if not impossible, any wholesome criticism. Men trained under this system are taught to ask the question, what is officially authorized, rather than to inquire what an honest study of the facts yields. Catholic ethics is thus necessarily static and conventional. It seeks to meet moral questions by interpreting a predetermined program rather than by analysis of actual conditions. Logically, it would compel a return to medieval culture when it was taken for granted that the Church should be supreme in authority over the thoughts and actions of men. The student ought to make himself acquainted with Catholic ethical ideals, 
for every pastor and social worker finds himself confronted with the powerful influence of the Catholic Church. In its fundamental distrust of merely natural or secular forces, Catholicism is intent on creating a kind of goodness which shall be ecclesiastically identified and approved, rather than a kind of goodness which shall lose itself in the social development of humanity as such. Ultimately, it is the other world of theological exposition, rather than the present world of historical development, which is to determine moral issues. It is true that by its elaborate casuistry, Catholicism attempts to meet the particular problems of changing life. But such casuistry is peculiarly liable to be misunderstood. In form, it too often seems to be a clever attempt to nullify the obvious meaning of authoritative pronouncements in order to give relief in some particular instance. If the highest good is defined as conformity to an authoritative standard, any nonconformity means moral laxity, however it be explained. It is only when a moral imperative can be found precisely in nonconformity itself that ethical integrity is possible in the act of departing from prescribed duties. For such an ethical interpretation, Catholicism makes no logical place. The Ethics of Protestantism from the ethical point of view, the fundamental distinction between Protestantism and Catholicism lies in the elimination of ecclesiastical authority by the former. This leaves the individual free from institutional domination. Protestantism, therefore, has attempted to find moral motives and sanctions in the Christian experience of the individual rather than in the pronouncements of the Church. The abandonment of the confessional is a mark of this emancipation of the individual. Moral activity is represented as the consequence of being saved by the grace of God. The Christian, filled with gratitude for God's love toward him, voluntarily devotes his life to the fulfillment of the will of God. One should be familiar with the vital optimism of this conception of morality, as it is expressed in Luther's sermons and in his treatise concerning Christian liberty. Such an ethical ideal opened the way for the recognition of moral values in secular life. It enabled Luther to declare that the housemaid in the kitchen is engaged in as sacred a task as is the clergyman. It inspired Luther's famous Address to the German Nobility, in which those whose vocation was in the realm of political activity were summoned to an opportunity for Christian ministry. Protestantism thus is much better adapted than is Catholicism to appreciate and to inspire non-ecclesiastical moral endeavors, and it is in Protestant lands that secular culture has been permitted to develop without the necessity of submitting to ecclesiastical control. But Protestantism, like Catholicism, retained the fundamental conception of a morality directed by prescriptions from another world. The Reformation occurred before men had come to realize the possibilities of empirical inquiry. The deductive method was still dominant in all branches of learning. Ethics also was regarded as a deductive science. Even philosophical ethics was attempting to set forth the principles furnished a priori in the divinely established law of nature. Protestantism supplemented this law of nature by the revealed law found in Scripture. Thus the essential content of ethics was regarded as given from above. In principle, the Protestant Christian, like the Catholic, is taught to study a ready-made code rather than to analyze the actual conditions of life. The fact that every individual has the right of private interpretation gives an opportunity for flexibility not found in Catholicism, and in recent years Protestant ethics has been very active in seeking to understand the problems of our modern life, though it still generally professes to derive its principles from an authoritative source in Scripture.
the defect of the traditional Protestant conception of ethics. We have come to realize the fact that human life is a historical growth, and that this growth involves changes in human culture. The moral code of the savage, with his simple life and his few interests, is totally inadequate to the complex problems of modern industrial and social life. The principles which secured justice in an age when every locality was virtually self-supporting and self-sufficient are hopelessly antiquated in an age when we are all dependent on transportation of goods and an intricate machinery of exchange of values. Moral principles, whether of the savage or of the modern man, must be derived from an appreciation of the actual moral needs engendered by conditions of life. Thus we are today more and more adopting the method of studying the facts of life as the means of determining what ought to be done. Now, Protestantism has continued to employ the deductive method. It has been assumed generally that a study of the Bible would adequately prepare one to live a moral life. But the Bible presents us with comparatively primitive conditions of industrial and social life. The principle of neighborliness is set forth as sufficient. And, in small communities where men know one another, neighborliness is a reasonably efficient way in which to secure right relations of men to one another. But in the complex conditions of a great industrial civilization, a man may earnestly desire to be neighborly, and yet find himself helplessly confronting moral evils. The ethical conception of Protestantism, emphasizing as it does the appeal to an alien source of moral authority, fails to train men in that inductive study of conditions which is indispensable to the evolution of a morality suited to our modern life. Protestantism, like Catholicism, is still primarily concerned with conventional, ecclesiastically approved virtues. We are just awakening to the fact that moral leadership has been fast passing out of the hands of the Church, simply because, in an age of rapid and profound change in habits of life, the Church has behaved as if a code of ethics wrought out two thousand years ago were entirely adequate to the demands of the present. The Need for a New Conception of Christian Ethics Since the same factors which occasion changes in theological thinking are operative in the realm of ethics as well, a reconstruction of ethical thinking is involved in theological reconstruction. The repudiation of the Catholic conception of the Church involved the radical revision of the idea of Christian morality which we find in Luther's treatment of the subject. But, as has been indicated in the section dealing with modern theology, we have today abandoned the ways of thinking which characterized early Protestantism. For modern men, God is to be discovered in the relations of the aspiring soul to immediate environment. He is imminent in the movements of history. The dictates of the Catholic Church are no more authoritative than the summons of actual moral need as we meet it. We cannot define Christian ethics in terms of a church-controlled society, Neither can we regard Christian duty as identical with biblical precepts. We readily disregard Paul's instructions concerning the public activities of women because we hold judgments due to our modern appreciation of woman's place in social life. We are learning more and more to organize our Christian activities in relation to the actual moral demands of life rather than in response to a pattern taken from an isolated portion of history. The most vigorous Christian activities of our day are building up their moral principles through actual experience. The Young Men's Christian Association, the Modern Sunday School, the Institutional Church, the methods of modern evangelism, the fight against intemperance and against vice, these movements are all employing an empirical method of determining morality which should be extended to the entire field of Christian ethics. They are not looking for explicit direction from an alien source, 
they are rather concerned to understand and to utilize the moral forces latent in life today. God's will is found in the actual appeal of the facts rather than in a prescribed code. Just as modern religious thinking is learning to draw its inspiration from the world in which we live, so modern Christian ethics must learn to determine its content by a careful study of the problems which confront us and an understanding of the resources with which we may attain moral results. Christian ethics should be defined as the determination of the duties of a modern Christian living in the modern world. To define it in terms of an ethical system belonging to another age is to fail to make Christianity completely ethical. Moral inefficiency due to confusion of ideals Until one definitely asks himself whether his moral duty is to conform to a given code or to meet the needs of the situation, one has not reached a foundation for the consistent building of the moral structure. Is it our Christian duty to organize church activities and to engage in missionary enterprise with the purpose of creating as many churches as possible which shall reproduce the scriptural polity? Or is it our Christian duty to ask what kind of a church and how many churches are demanded by the religious needs of each community? Are criminally overchurched small towns with their sectarian rivalries and their pitiful struggles for bare existence are monuments of moral delinquency due to a failure to base duty on a study of the facts? The same moral failure is sure to follow any enterprise which is guided merely by an ethics of conformity. Our Christian activities today are in too many instances following the scribes rather than Jesus. Our treatises on Christian conduct are too generally using the scribal methods of exegesis of scriptural texts rather than the method employed by Jesus, by Paul, and by all great moral prophets of determining duty by spiritual insight into the actual conditions confronting them. The method of the scribes is always cumbersome and clumsy. So long as we are pursuing the devious way of attempting to solve modern moral problems by a study of precepts addressed to other times and other occasions, we shall reap the harvest of moral confusion. Nothing is more imperatively demanded of the modern minister than an understanding of the inadequacy of the deductive method which we have inherited in our Christian ethics. Our religious instruction and our moral training must be brought into line with that method of ascertaining duty which is in accord both with the practice of Jesus and with the science of our day. The Study of Psychology and of Sociology In order to feel at home in the use of this empirical method of studying ethical problems, every minister should avail himself of the aid furnished by modern psychology and sociology. In these branches of human investigation he finds men first asking questions concerning the facts of human life, and then deriving their conclusions from the facts. For example, where the older dogmatic theology began with a doctrine of innate sinfulness, modern investigations ascertain as far as possible the concrete causes of behavior. It has been shown, for example, that minor physical defects, such as adenoids or poor eyesight or dull hearing, lead children to unwholesome mental attitudes and to wrong conduct. Manifestly, to allow these physical hindrances to receive no attention is to neglect our plain moral duty. To discover the specific reasons why people go wrong is a better preparation for dealing with their moral problems than is a detailed metaphysical or theological study of the nature of sin. To ascertain in detail just what it is in the experience of men that constitutes the motive to do right is better than to indulge in rhetorically vague appeals to conscience. To know the physical conditions of a wholesome spiritual life is an indispensable part of ethics. 
Here it should be remarked that most philosophical treatises on ethics are too metaphysical and abstract to furnish the needed aid. Philosophy, as well as theology, has been under the domination of the deductive method. The effort has been to establish some a priori principle from which to derive the content of ethics. From Kant's categorical imperative to the utilitarian greatest good of the greatest number, the ethical systems of the past century have attempted to unify and simplify ethics by subsuming all particular kinds of conduct under some one ultimate norm. Inspiring as is the conception of some great all-inclusive ideal, it nevertheless does not furnish one with the sort of insight which is developed by patient inquiry into the facts. The student should master some treatise which effectively employs the empirical method. The Spirit of Christian Ethics Having come to understand that moral problems must be studied inductively, the student is freed from the blighting influence of the ideal of mere conformity. Ethics is a creative activity, not a mere reproduction and application of predetermined principles. The real power of Christian ethics is revealed only as moral activity is seen to be the way in which one joyously and heroically unites his activities with those of the loving God whose presence one has been able to realize in one's inner life. The creative identification of one's will with the purpose of God and the conviction that the will of God is most truly found in those attitudes and ministrations of love which Jesus exemplified, and which his truest followers have always put foremost, these are the essentials of Christian ethics. One who believes in the possibility of this cooperation with the divine purposes is stimulated to an optimistic idealism with surprising possibilities. One is not daunted by seemingly insuperable difficulties. One feels the divine call and knows that the divine strength is available in every heroic undertaking. While one prays that the kingdom of God may come, one also rejoices in the opportunity to have a share in bringing in the better day. Let one recall the courage with which devout Christians have undertaken appalling tasks. Think of the magnitude of the missionary enterprise, of the untiring evangelism which never despairs of even the desperately sinful, of the insistence of Christians in the face of social distinctions that all men have equal rights to spiritual opportunities, of the fight against intemperance, impurity, and demoralizing luxury. Christianity enables those who bear heavy burdens to feel the aid of a divine yoke-fellow. It brings to the man who faces tasks too large for his strength the consciousness of God's slowly moving but wonderful plans. It lifts one's thinking and one's aspirations above the petty level of utilitarian plans and gives to life at its best a grandeur and a significance which suggest divine possibilities. Men who are conscious of longing for the coming of the kingdom of God will pray and strive to live in the spirit of the kingdom, and will thus experience the presence and power of God in their lives. It is the creative power of such religiously inspired morality that distinguished the early Christians from the mere conformists of their day, and that made them the founders of a growing religion of power. The New Testament, rightly understood, is the charter of the religion of the Spirit, and should stimulate modern Christians to a forward-looking creative spirit of active fellowship to Jesus in relation to the problems of our day. The Development of Christian Character The most important and significant moral task of Christianity is the creation of a moral purpose, leading men to transcend the convenient utilitarian standards which excuse easy-going conduct and to face the question of a right relationship to God, from whom the inner life of man cannot be concealed. 
In Christian experience, one learns the joy and strength which comes from fellowship with Jesus in the identification of self with the holy purpose of the loving God. It is difficult to overestimate the moral significance of this experience of communion with the living God. It makes possible self-sacrifice for the sake of the goods of the kingdom of God. It brings into life the reinforcement of a spiritual friendship with God. It inspires men to dare to hope for large things and to attempt seemingly hopeless tasks. We are constantly aware of moral opportunities which must be neglected because the spiritual life of men is too poor to undertake the necessary toil and sacrifice. The most important task of Christian ethics is to set forth the reality and the moral power of such an experience of God through discipleship to Jesus. The technique of secular investigation may be used to ascertain our moral problems, but the spiritual dynamic for high moral undertakings almost inevitably is derived from Christian lives. The reality of this moral power is best seen in those who have been sublimely conscious of the ethical dynamic found in their experience. What gave to Jesus his unwavering moral courage? How does Paul seek to give moral strength to his own life and to the activities of those to whom he wrote? Read in Augustine's Confessions the repeated emphasis on the divine source of his own moral triumphs. Let St. Francis of Assisi, Luther, John Wesley, and Tolstoy testify concerning the source of their moral strength. In this religious inspiration of moral endeavor, Christianity makes its indispensable contribution to ethics. To fail to understand this is to fail to touch the heart of Christian ethics. Back of all discussions of particular moral problems should lie the appreciation of the inner resources of a Christian, who looks upon his tasks as contributions to be made to the accomplishment of the divine will on earth, and as activities in which profound communion with the righteous God is attained. Christian ethics is primarily concerned with the Christian attitude toward life as the practical outgrowth of the experience of Christian faith. Christianity and Social Ethics While the interpretation of moral character in relation to the Christian experience belongs naturally in the department of theology, the analysis of social problems must be undertaken by one who is familiar with the social sciences. This necessary division of labor is not as widely recognized as it should be. We are still under the influence of the medieval conception of the authority and ability of the Church to dictate political and social conditions. It is of the utmost importance that the student should come to think of social institutions as natural developments. In every race and in every condition of human life there is some kind of family life, some form of group government, some current way of educating each new generation, some socially approved methods of conducting industrial life. To speak of the Christian family, for example, as if Christianity were responsible for creating family life, means to emphasize precisely such technical regulations as are prominent in Catholicism, and to fail to take due account of the light which historical and social science may throw on the problems in this realm. The political welfare of the modern world involves the refusal to allow the Church to dictate in the realm of government. Our modern governments are secular and natural rather than Christian. This means that in the field of social problems, Christianity must employ the same method of determining what is desirable that is used by secular agencies. If the result of an open-minded inquiry shows that the highest good demands a reversal of previous doctrines, Christian ethics should be foremost in declaring the moral duty of a change. For example, Christianity is rapidly reversing the judgment of former generations concerning the vocations of women, 
It is doing this not because of any better understanding of biblical precepts, not because of any technical claim to a Christian solution of the problems due to the emancipation of women, but because Christian people, recognizing the facts of our social development, desire to approve what is manifestly good. The contribution of Christian ethics in this realm must be largely that of keen sympathy for human welfare developed by the Christian faith, with its affirmation of the holy purpose of God to establish his kingdom, and its insistence on Christian love toward men as the only defensible attitude in the sight of God. From Christianity will therefore come a powerful impulse toward generous justice in social relations, and toward subjecting the material forces of the world to the promotion of human spiritual welfare. But the precise ways in which justice and spirituality are to be secured must be determined by experiment and investigation. The social order is to be Christianized, not in the sense that every aspect of human life shall be technically related to the church, but rather in the sense that men who direct society shall possess the spirit of service and of religious aspiration which find their clearest expression and inspiration in the Christian ideal of life. End of chapter 9, part 5